I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. This is episode 23 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We are hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Terry, Elizabeth, as they say in Mamma Mia, here we go again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, this is off to a good start. This is off to a good start. Whatever. whatever. On this episode, we have for listeners a wonderful guest, a colleague and astute observer of all things theatrical, Helen Shaw, critic for Time Out New York and the Four Columns Arts Criticism website. And a regular contributor to... Uh... Our host, American Theatre Magazine. Aha, uh-huh. yes, indeed, of course. Uh, so we're going to talk to Helen about a subject she knows well, which is the landscape of, of, of Broadway, that mysterious land. That's two offs, right? Two offs. As opposed to just one off, right? <laughs> yeah, so there are probably people, we, we take for granted that people out there understand the difference between off and off, off Broadway. Maybe we can get even like lay that we'll, out for we'll people. We'll do that. I would say, with small. I would say small, a good way to start. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get yeah. to that. I'm, I'm getting ahead of, good, good, good. ahead of myself here. Uh, so it's a loose confederation of, um, I would say, what, like roach motels, <laughs> sing- singles, tiny walk-ups, um, yeah. no elevator or freight elevator. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah. No. It's basically... The, the smaller spaces in New York, but in, it describes in far and uh, in, in locations both near and far. Yes, but city. it also describes, I would say, a kind of art, it's it's an artistic and geographical definition. Yes, and we're going to discuss with Helen, who writes about both art and theater, the unique terrain she's carved out, and how the work of critics across the arts is changing. And of course, there will be time after that bracing discussion for our traditional three of the aisle tip of the hat to a show or two each of us feels deserves your attention. One way or the other. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Great. Uh, But first, we're happy to welcome to the studio Helen Shaw, who's a theater critic for Time Out New York and Four Columns, among other places, Uh, formerly also The Village Voice, American Theater, as we've mentioned. Uh, Helen, it's great to have you here. And um, you also have actually an extensive um, arts resume because you've worked as a dramaturg on productions of Shaw and Shakespeare and in fact I recently I ran into you at the resistible rise of Arturo Ui mm. recently which is where you disclosed you had worked on the infamous Al Pacino production oh, yeah. of that oh, my show God. we have to talk about that and in addition to all that, because that's just not enough. Was that Simon McBurney who directed it, wasn't it? It was, At yeah. Pace, wasn't it? At Pace, At Pace oh University. Oh, I'm excited. We're, oh, my God. Yeah. The stories will be good. Yeah. Um, and, okay, because that's not enough, she also teaches at NYU. I do. I do. It's nice to be here. Thank you, you for having me. You look remarkably uh, normal and unfrazzled by well, your Well, I didn't teach load. this morning, which is why I seem so <laughs> lively. So you're fresh for us, then. Yes. Well, Helen, we've been stabbing around at it, but perhaps you might start out, especially for the benefit of our listeners outside New York, by answering a question that I don't think is as obvious as it sounds. Exactly what and where are off-off Broadway? Or does that question not lend itself to an exact answer? 
Well, there is a legal definition because it governs certain uh, agreements between shows and their actors, mm. according to equity. You can, uh, you in order to be an off-off Broadway house, uh, you have to follow certain rules, including having a relatively short run. Uh, you can't exceed a certain number of performances. You can't exceed a certain number of seats. So the sort of smallness is baked in. Uh, off off Broadway, though, uh, so on, if you are looking at an equity contract, there is a difference between an off Broadway house and an off off Broadway house. Uh, you also obviously have the wild and woolly uh, group of non equity uh, performance spaces, uh, and you also have places that are sitting on a kind of interesting margin, presenters like PS122 mm. or La Mama that may bring in shows from other places. And again, as, as, Elizabeth said there's a there tends to be a bit of overlap between what we think of as off off Broadway and the experimental theater mm -hmm. although uh, because as you go into these smaller and smaller spaces that have fewer and fewer rules that govern them you may well be finding people performing Miss Julie in an incredibly standard production it's just that they had $30 to do it and the props are all from their right. parents junk drawer <laughs> and uh, so so at some point smallness is the kind of the governing ethos there right what about the what about the geography Helen well uh, because of the way that New York has begun to eat itself, um, mm. there are often off-off spaces right in the middle of what we think of as theatrical downtown, right near Times Square, uh, because any basement, anywhere where you've seen more than five or six cockroaches, uh, can qualify as an off-off space. And Is, is uh, that in the equity contract? That I think it is. I think it is. One of them is the equity roach, and he gets a little hat. <laughs> and... You have a – so really at this point, it is all over New York. Um, I live in Brooklyn, and uh, many of these spaces are in Brooklyn. Uh, a few of them are in Long Island City. Some of the very important ones, actually, are showing up in Long Island City. Uh, for those people who do not live in New York uh, and who do not obsessively follow the – uh, subway news, uh, <laughs> the fact that one of our subway lines is going to shut down the L. in the coming right. year means that many of these tiny spaces, uh, some of them that have become pretty crucial to our right. theatrical ecosystem, the Bushwick Star, which is absolutely indispensable and uh, I would like to note is very luxe and very gorgeous and does not have any roach issues at mm. all. <laughs> yes, um, it's a great place. Yeah. It's beautiful. The Chocolate Factory, which is in Long Island City, these are wonderful, wonderful theaters. Uh, and they're about to get smacked mm. by a by a two year uh, subway suspension. So, so if you are saying your prayers tonight, you should say something for non Manhattan off off theater and hope and hope that Lyft has extra drivers, you know, on duty on theater nights. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you, Helen. A couple, of, actually, because of your varied background, uh, especially uh, as you have worked as a dramaturg, what? I'm, people probably are curious, how did you get started as a critic? Well, uh, I got started as a critic um, through uh, desperation. Um, <laughs> I, that's, that's really desperate. My, yeah. my, my own and other people's. Um, <laughs> my own desperation was that I was very, very poor. Uh, living in New York, uh, I was... Uh, for about a year and a half, I only slept on people's couches or cat sat. And so I was technically homeless. And I had started to go 
kind of mad from from the lack of stability. Uh, at the same time, the New York Sun, which is a now mm. defunct newspaper, uh, the critic there is someone I'd gone to school with, uh, Jeremy McCarter, and he wanted to cover the New York Fringe Festival. And the New York Fringe Festival uh, at that time was quite important and also uh, very large. Mm-hmm. And so he needed basically all hands on deck. And he sent me an email and said, I hear you have a degree in dramaturgy. Uh, a, what is that? And B, uh, <laughs> would you like to cover the fringe? And I said, 50 bucks a review. I mean, <laughs> what? Uh, this is, I will eat like a queen. And that, That's it, Helen. You are unique. You are the first person in the history of criticism to get into it for the money. I did it for the money. Right. I did it. Well, I did it for the... The Taco Bell two gordita special, and uh, which I then lived on for the next six months. <laughs> it was, and it was a great, great act of generosity by Jeremy McCarter. He's he not only got me into it, but he also edited me for the first year that I wrote. He was a wonderful editor, mm-hmm. and uh, the Sun was a just a, a paper that I I miss was, very keenly. It was a great. The Sun was a great incubator. It was, yeah, it really was. terrific writers, and uh, mm-hmm. it was anyway. It was paradise for a little while, and. Uh, uh, and then, you know, sort of once you're bitten by the bug, you just keep going. Were, were you trying for a while to also continue to be a dramaturg? Or did you, because you didn't really, were you trying to do both? How, oh, yeah. how was that working out? Oh, yeah. Not great. Uh, <laughs> I finally realized that it was pretty sketchy that I was about to review a show at New York Theatre Workshop and I was pulling a paycheck from New York Theatre Workshop <laughs> because I was assistant directing a show there. And so I very quickly quit all of my jobs uh, so that I could so that I could keep doing the job that I clearly cared more about. And that was the big break. Well, actually, well, can, can you tell us what a dramaturg does? Because I think that's one of the most mysterious... Uh, job titles in theater. There's, I mean, is, isn't it? Uh, I think they are dramatic like, jokes. It's like, like I'm talking viola, to my mother. Viola it's weird. jokes in, in orchestras. <laughs> a dramaturg is uh, is a very ancient art. Uh, it's a noble profession, um, and we're actually when we get the degree, we are sworn to secrecy <laughs> about what it entails. Yeah. It mm-hmm. it mostly if you ask a playwright what a dramaturg is, <laughs> it is the bossy boots who shows up and says, "Oh, have you thought about moving the climax forward twenty minutes?" Uh, if you talk to a director, the dramaturg is the person you go to and say, "I want someone to do a lot of research, mm. and I can't be bothered." Mm. And if you ask an actor who the dramaturg is, it's the sad little mouse creature on the first day of rehearsal who gives a presentation on, you know, uh, you know, concerns of the day and whether or not the Elizabethans went to the bathroom or whatever. Uh, and so I've done all of that. It's such a pleasure. Um, but yeah, you, so you can see the overlaps with criticism are p- so it's a pretty it's a pretty tight Venn diagram between the unloved right. dramaturg and the unloved critic. It, it's also a literary advisor. I mean, companies hire dramaturgs. Uh, you know, some actual regional theaters have them as ongoing consultants to help mm-hmm. choose seasons. To I mean, there's it's it's a it's a it's not. Uh, uh, it, it can be broadly defined, and also to write the programs sometimes for theater companies, playbills. I mean, it's it has a lot of um, 
there's a sort of jack of all trades kind of aspect to the job. Yeah, it's like having a pet academic. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right. A pet academic. What, what, wasn't there like a famous great. show where there was a, a legal? Was that was that Rent? Where there was an yes. issue with the dramaturg yes. wanted part of the credit. Yes, there was. I a think it was Rent, right? Absolutely. It was oh, pretty, it was, pretty, it was a huge pretty ugly. Deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me add something. So they're very the way, litigious, is, in other words. That's what we're saying. Yeah, we sue. Yeah. We always sue. <laughs> anyway, if you're, a, Terry, sorry. If, you're a, if you're a playwright who's written the biography of the person about whom your play is, you're the dramaturg. Uh, and mm. I discovered that when I wrote a play about Louis Armstrong, and I'd just written a biography of him. And I was the one that everybody would come to and say, was he really here in 1927? And things like that. Mm. And uh, the idea of having somebody else doing this seems to me unimaginably luxurious. Mm. So, so, uh, so, so, Helen, take us now. Uh, so we've established you, that, you know, you're a, you're a complete uh, academic fraud. That's what you're basically <laughs> saying. I understand. Um, uh, as, you know, and so we all feel very comfortable with you here. But uh, uh, the, the other uh, aspect we were talking about was off-off Broadway. So... So bringing these things together, your you know, your, your Jerry McCarter, your uh, your uh, your your mentor in a sense, brought you into this business. Um, how did you go? And about- then and then immediately got out. I would like to point out, <laughs> right. it was a real it was a real bait, bait and, and switch, switch move. Yeah. Got it. So um, so as your as your um, uh, knowledge uh, and 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 confidence in 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 writing about shows from from the other side grew. How do you how do you start deciding? What things you need to cover? Uh, are there are there parts of the uh, the off and off off Broadway waterfront that are uh, self evident to you that need to be written about? Do you are they? Does it evolve as in terms of what your taste is? Because in very many ways you are going to be introducing many many productions and artists to a, a larger world. Well, uh, it is. In some ways, it's the quantum foam level of uh, of the theater. Uh, it's the R and D department. You see things bubbling up, mm-hmm. uh, off off. Uh, certainly, it's one reason to pay very close attention to it, and it is why I enjoy it so much. Is that the risk reward is actually very. It's so surprising. Uh, you can see terrible things uh, every night that you go to the theater. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no question. Mm. I have been um, not... Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was at a show where I was literally locked in a cage <laughs> with my three fellow audience members, and I thought, well, I guess this is how I go out. This is the last basement <laughs> yeah. that I see. And uh, it was so Did risk. the fire department know about this arrangement? I mean, I've sent some anonymous notes. Um, <laughs> But so there is there is danger. Uh, but then when you see something in a space like that, um, which excites and thrills you, mm. I have to say it is it is more exciting and mm-hmm. more thrilling mm. yes. than seeing it after it has gotten the sort of the sweet and loving touch of, of uh, whatever roundabout truth. Yeah. What kind of learning curve did you have, Helen, for where the creative action is off off Broadway? How long did it take you to find your footing? Well, another editor of mine who is, um, I must must praise, is David Cody was my editor at Time Out when I started. And David came out of the performance tradition off-off Broadway. He had been a uh, performer for Richard Foreman. 
And so he knew it intimately. He had, before he came to Time Out, he'd run a zine, which I believe hmm. he and his friend illegally Xeroxed at the New York Times. <laughs> I could be wrong about that. And I'm sorry, David, if I've gotten you in trouble. Uh, but David was... Uh, very important because he sent me to things that I never would have seen. I was just reminded the other day uh, because Dave Malloy, uh, the uh, musical theater composer, uh, just posted recently on Twitter. He was talking about a show he did when he first got to the city called Sandwich, which is a show I was sent to by David Cody uh, down at the Collapsible Hole. It was hilarious. Uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece by a group called Banana Bag and Bodice. And I never would have gone if I had if I, you know, had been, I don't know, looking at normal listings mm. or, or what have you. So I was, I was often sent to these things. And then as with so many of these things, uh, you know, actually this is an answer that's changing, but what used to be true is that you would fall in love with a venue. Mm. And so once you knew that collapsible hole was mm-hmm. being run by a bunch right. of, let us just say it, insane yahoos. Yeah, lunatics. Who, lunatics right. who would literally just give the keys to the space to whoever rolled up. Mm. Uh, you knew that it would be worth seeing. And so I saw every show at Collapsible Hole. I saw every show at PS122 in its old incarnation. Mark um, Russell. Under Mark Russell. Uh, you know, you would trust you would trust the space uh, sometimes more than you would trust yourself. Uh, the Incubator, which is now gone. Um, what other collective unconscious? Although collective they had a lot of they had a lot of sewage yeah. issues. I went to a lot of stuff there. Yeah, well, we're all dealing do with you, those old infections. Do, but do you think there's st- there are still places like that where you go regardless of, like, if it's at that space, you're going to go? I mean... Uh, I... Uh, I mean, I, I have a hard time learning lessons. I'm still <laughs> leaning up against hot stoves, you know what I mean, and not <laughs> expecting to get a blister. But I would still say that what is used to be as PS122 is now called Performance Space New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very careful to go to their entire season. Uh, BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. Uh, but more for me now, uh, the spaces have mostly gone and so mm. uh, the places that I really trusted and loved are gone. And so now uh, I've found that it tends to gravitate towards festivals. So mm. if the Exponential Festival runs something, I will go to it because I trust that they have um, they have the requisite both knowledge but also kind of adventurousness. So, so, so it's more like you're following a person, like a curator in a way. Like it's, it seems to be more personality driven and then they could have a show. Well, except that the places that I'm drawn to are the ones that are very lightly curated. Mm-hmm. So Radio Hole, as I say, I think if you could find their phone number, they would let you perform in their space. Um, the old PS122 under Mark Russell uh, you know, I, I don't think he knew the name of everybody who performed in those spaces. Right. And so there is a, the the very, the curation with a very light touch is actually the secret. And there is, you know, I, I mean, I did this, I, I covered Off-Off-Broadway and Off-Broadway for the Times in the 90s. And uh, what happens, in, and it's a whole other, you know, there is this issue of, of, of what organization you're working for and what the expectations of the readers of that organization mm-hmm. are. And I would imagine for you, Helen, it was, there's a, it's a much freer um, kind of writing to, to be able to talk to 
potentially a younger audience that you know wasn't expecting you know Broadway style performances when they read uh, a review in the New York Times celebrating something way downtown that I would write about like Adobe in those days or collapsible giraffe or tons of other uh, elevator repair service in their very early days but I wonder is there also a danger of is there a Stockholm syndrome possibility can you can you become as the voice in a sense the critical voice of this whole community or one of the few that that has um, a, 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 a reputation uh, can you does it sometimes hard to divorce yourself from the idea that if you know that some bad words for you from you can really sink a, a company like that or make them feel like you know oh we had Helen on our side and we don't now anymore well uh the uh, unfortunately, the first assumption is the one that's wrong, which is that um, is that I still write about this stuff a lot. Uh, the exigencies of print media, mm-hmm. but even online media, uh, means that I am allowed to write almost never about this stuff. Mm. Uh, no one will take it anymore mm. because the main plague of of uh, of off-off-Broadway is the short run. Mm. And as I said, some of these short runs are being determined by finances. Some of them are being determined by contracts. Some of them are being determined because there's only so much salami you can throw at an audience. You know what I mean? You buy in bulk and then then you've done it. But the the fact... I think that if you had asked me 10 years ago, Mm. Helen, are you the person who writes about this stuff? I Mm. would have said very confidently, Mm. yes. I would have tossed my ponytail over my shoulder. I would have (laughs) basked in the warm radiance of the love of the off-off-Broadway community. And now there's there's so little coverage. Mm. And so I'm going. I go down there. But I don't get to write about it really, really very much at all. It's it's really hard because... uh, I mean, I try to keep up, and it's it's impossible. But there, I mean, there's also so much stuff. Yeah. Just in general. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things is like, even if if we're not writing about it right away, you kind of bank it. You see someone, an actor, a writer you like, and then you start following their name, and maybe their next project will have a run longer than ten days or yeah. three. And that's why that's well, that's unfortunately. What's the collateral damage of this? Of this, uh, what's what's the consequence of not being able to cover this stuff um, the way with the vigor that we all actually, you know, in, in some ways it's it is the most rewarding to be there at the birth of something. I mean, it is exciting, it is thrilling. It means much more than being, uh, you know, in a herd, you know, uh, running to you know the Booth Theater for a, the, the latest opening, uh, or even at a regional theater where there's you know a whole PR apparatus. Uh, what is what are we losing? What thread is being frayed here? Well, there was a little while ago, there was a, uh, a, a very shareable video about the impact of reintroducing wolves uh, at Yellowstone. <laughs> and it turns out that the wolves had been preying on the elk, mm. and the elk had been eating the uh, bushes. And so when the wolves came back, the wolves started focusing on the elk. That took out the elk, and then the bushes came back. And I have to say, I kind of think that's what's happening mm. huh. to us, okay. is is that because 
if the critics are the wolves in this situation, okay, and and uh, there's just not Perfect. very there's like there's like what are there seven of us left? Mm. So sad. Uh, we just can't eat enough elk to let the <laughs> to let the little bushes grow, okay. And so for me, what I've noticed, I am so stealing this. This is, is too good. so great. <laughs> is that that there's less there is less stuff because we don't cover it there mm. and now that this has been happening for a generation and in theater a generation is five years so because it takes how mm-hmm. long does it take to graduate from an mfa program mm. three years two years to go broke so you have so <laughs> in a single theatrical generation oh we have lost a huge quantity oh of stuff when i think about when i look back at my calendars because i keep paper calendars like some kind of i don't know Elizabethan. You and, you and Donald Trump, right? It's Didn't me. he have his calendars? <laughs> me and Kavanaugh. Me and Kavanaugh. Oh, Kavanaugh. Yeah. That's what Kavanaugh. I was thinking. And Kavanaugh. let me tell you, Sorry. it's all yeah. beer. It's all just beer yeah. parties. But what I know that's code <laughs> for is some show at PS122. And so when I think about the sheer quantity of stuff that there was to see in 2007, I mean, come on, mm. 2007 was not that long ago. Mm. And now when I think about I've just been making my little wish list to see things, it is thinner and thinner and thinner. And because I am a narcissist, I think that is because there is less criticism, less coverage. You know, mm-hmm. Helen, the experience you're describing really reminds me of my own experience covering regional theater in the United States. Um, uh, when I started doing it, I didn't know what was out there. And I gradually discovered first the cities, then the theaters. I, I my, As I was sort of skating over the landscape, uh, I found that there were companies that I could really trust, that I did want to come back to see two or three times a year. And I've been doing it now for close to a decade and a half. And one of the things that I am discovering is that many of these companies are getting less adventurous in terms of their programming. Uh, it's a sort of a long-term effect of the, of the fiscal crisis. Uh, it's finally caught up with them. You actually had major companies go completely out of business, like Intiman and, and, and uh, Florida Stage. And uh, it really, I mean, regional theater is, is still reasonably healthy. But uh, it's it's tricky to find out where the action is. And you talk about the Stockholm Syndrome. You know, I'm intensely aware of the fact that if I write about a black box theater in the Wall Street Journal, it's going to affect their box office mm. that weekend. It's really hard not to think about that. Mm-hmm. I can't not think about it, to be honest with you. Mm. Well, since I, as I say, since I'm not really being asked to cover the things that I want to cover. Oh, single tier. Um, I, I don't actually have that issue. Um, the thing that I've noticed is that because I spend so much of my time downtown, uh, I actually think I'm harder on this stuff mm. than people who come in as right. tourists mm. from right, uptown. Right, 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 right. And uh, certain uh, critics whose names shall remain unspoke, uh, <laughs> who do come down and see the stuff off broad off off Broadway, for which uh, everyone is extremely grateful. Uh, those uh, people can sometimes overpraise mm-hmm. work, which is if you had it, it is simply not worth the overpraising. Right, right. 
Uh, is it because they aren't seeing everything else by that particular artist? Or is it because, as you say, they have this this hypersensitivity to, but these are tiny little crushable bluebells. You don't want to step on them with your nasty, you know, giant dinosaur foot. Uh, but I, I'm a man, I believe in tough love, and I also believe in uh, speaking uh, as a truthful witness, and I don't think it does us that much good to overpraise everything that happens in the tiny mm-hmm. spaces. I think no, you've got to walk into Abrams, right. and I think you've got to say, this is not the best show that this company that I love has mm-hmm. ever done, right. and they are making choices I cannot follow. You may not be right. It's criticism. Right. You're, it's mm-hmm. just an opinion. Right. But but the but surrounding everybody with the I mean acting like we're all bowling on the children's lane with the gutters that have the inflatable <laughs> pillows in them like that doesn't do anybody any good nobody gets nobody gets better aim if they know that there's a cushion I'll tell you another I'll tell you another reason why I suspect why some of these these visiting firemen overpraise it's because they're bored stiff by Broadway and uh, they probably. They've probably seen a run of, of appalling commodity musicals and commercial shows. And the experience of, of getting downtown and seeing something that is off the wall is, is such a novelty that they don't really have anything much to compare it with besides King Kong. Okay, so about King Kong, I'm so glad you brought it up. Terry. So I will say one of the things that my life in the off-off Broadway I can't say trenches because it's all pleasure. The off-off-Broadway fields, you know, uh, gives you is this wonderful. It's like if you if you really want your coffee to have a kick, what you should do is go off coffee for a couple of weeks and then have a cup, and it just blows your mind. Mm. Wow. So I spent... Uh, 10 years, 15 years writing about the theater uh, and never going to Broadway and sometimes lying to people about how many shows I'd seen on Broadway and other times kind of faking it. And then finally I started going to Broadway kind of recently here. And I will tell you, it's just blown my tiny starved mind. I sat through King Kong and I will tell you that one third of my brain kept thinking, it's so loud for yeah, the right. whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just thinking, <laughs> how many speakers do they have? If every theater south of 14th Street got together, pooled its money, brought every speaker they had at their homes in, they could not make one half of the mm. decibel value of King Kong. And like it's, it is actually kind of a fun way to oversensitize yourself to the stuff uptown. Okay, it's garbage, but it's garbage that is on fire, and that's very exciting. That's funny. Garbage that's on fire. Yeah. Highly, po- highly polished turds. Oh, no, gleaming in the sunshine. So very there, exciting. There is a romance. Listen, there was a romance to seeing. To you, know, you have to have a certain exposure to failure of on a small scale, on the small scale of off off Broadway and but, the like to really understand how, you know, as a critic, how to write about the theater. And anyone yeah. who hasn't come in at that level, I I feel, mm-hmm. is not really going to be a very good critic in the long run because but, that perspective, uh, understanding, uh, th- you know, that there are going to be diamonds in the rough, that, you know, that um, when I got to the Times, in fact, you know, um, uh, I, uh, 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 um, uh, Arthur Gelb, took me out to lunch and said to me, he said, listen, as the second critic, uh, you know, I don't think this is necessarily true, but he said 90% of what you're going to see is shit. (laughs) He said, so you've got to find some other way to uh, engage yourself in this work. Now, I didn't find that 
that proportion to be true. <laughs> but that was the perspective of Arthur Gelb at the New York Times on, on what was going on, you know, in this world we're describing. I actually found, you know, wonderful things that uh, that really moved me and and inspired me, along with many nights where I was like, oh my god, what? I had nights like yours trapped in the cage. I I spent a night. At PS 122, as the only member of the audience at a one-woman show, and it happened to and, me, and it was a one-woman show in which the actress talked to me the entire hour and a half. She never took her eyes off me, and I didn't know what to do because I had a pad, and I saw so I was writing, staring back at her into her eyes the whole time as I'm trying to write and turn pages. Classic, and, and, yeah, I'd like. What and then at the end, which didn't really feel like the end, yeah, no. there was a silence, sure. and I had to kind of go. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, but so what I'm saying is that this, but this was a wonderful experience at yeah. some level. Yeah, yeah. You'll this remember was a it on great your night of theater, yeah. and, and you know, in retrospect, not to write about particularly, but well, but so so I do think that there's incredible value to being that person who's been in the so-called trenches learning well, about my, and then can come to King Kong and understand that wonderful well, thing you said, which is, it's all noise. Well, you know, what's you know? interesting is that the, it's just it's just really fascinating to see the many faces of failure. There's so <laughs> many different ways a show can fail or come short. And it ha- I mean, it's just fascinating because there's these expectations, for instance, that Broadway is the ne plus ultra of, of theater. And if, even if the show is really dumb, at least you'll get amazing technical. And I've seen such crap, Tec- just like even on the technical sides, just shitty sets, just bad sound design, just completely amateur stuff. And, and when you compare to some of the really, you know, when you compare, when you take it... Com- budget-wise, that I've seen downtown. You just, it really puts it in a completely different perspective, I think, to have this this opening. I, so one of the things I think I think that you're, you're pointing to here is that the innovation that poverty forces mm-hmm. a show to have is, is, is actually one of its contact thrills. And uh, just watching people do much with little is itself, even if the project has, has problems. And this is actually why I think um, the, the really exciting stuff that I see that is off-off is actually uh, usually related to or at least partially staffed by people who do dance. Because if you want to find someone who can absolutely make a show on nothing, Mm -hmm. on starvation wages, it is a dancer. And so a lot of our current best and most imaginative theater makers are actually choreographers for us. So Greg Zuccolo, mm. David Newman, mm. uh, Ralph Lemon, uh, Okwe Okpakwasili, who just won the MacArthur. I can't believe you pronounced her name so easily like that. Oh, that was amazing. I mean, I, she is my, she is my, rehearsing. she is my great star. I mean, she is mm-hmm. just a North no, star. She's, yeah. And so there's, there is, I think that it is, uh, if people are hungry for that, and I certainly have gotten hungrier and hungrier for it because, as I say, I think it's getting thinner at the off-off level here because of various pressures of the mm. city, mm-hmm. uh, that dance is where you go. Go to the dance shows. Go to the American Realness Festival, uh, and you'll you'll see that level of innovation that you sort of was, were hoping you would find when you came downtown. Can, can I just like go back a little bit? Um, you had mentioned earlier... Uh, the MFA word, and I'm curious about the evolution of the pipeline. Who who is making? Who are the young? 
Like, what's the pipeline to become a theater maker right now? Was it? I mean, because the, the MFA seems to have taken a huge part, and we see people now go straight from from Yale to Playwrights Horizons mm-hmm. or something like that. There doesn't seem to be that off off step on the way, which I think can be detrimental. Uh, to, I mean, it's detrimental or not to have it. I mean, I or is it I, not I'm happening? Very, well, I, I'm very leery of. I I went through a period when I really felt that the MFA was uh, evil uh, because it was putting people in debt and it was uh, cranking out a, out a whole bunch of people who were encountering important, innovative, exciting, transgressive voices in class mm. and that taking that stuff in as part of your syllabus is very different from taking in it in as part of your experience. And so you got this kind of, uh, you know... Uh, you would go to something at the playwrights realm, which is invested in theater that looks a lot like stuff Paula Vogel's doing, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, very imagistic, very um, emotionally uh, uh, intimate work. And uh, it all felt like it was being written by the same person because everybody was coming out of the same syllabus. And and I do still obviously feel that way in part. I, I also, though, think that in, in this crappy world if you can find a place where you can be quiet for three years and write Mm -hmm. uh it's it's hard to to criticize that Mm -hmm. so right so yes there's the idea of the pipeline coming up from off off seems to be over uh if you watched though uh the absolutely heartbreaking documentary uh uh, about maria ren fornez that michelle Mm memorin made uh, the rest I make up, uh, you see that it was always a fiction for uh, the really exciting voices. Uh, you know, for Fornes, who got, you know, Promenade was an important a play, important musical, uh, but she, when she died, she died uh, forgotten by the major institutions. She died mm-hmm. uh, un- unproduced for the last decade of her life. So I think there's a, I think... I think we can exaggerate because we are so nostalgic for what off off used to mean mm-hmm. uh, that we exaggerate the the way that that operated as but a pipeline. It, there's also, I mean, I think it is interesting that, or, or ironic or sad that just as we're talking about bringing uh, artists of color, uh, women up through the ranks, this is a time of you know thinking about all those people who were left out. Uh, a generation and two generations ago, or at least had a really harder time, just as that's happening, these avenues for exploring their work are drying up. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it becomes doubly important, obviously, for the institute, the big institutions to take up the mantle. But is there a, you know, I wonder if there's some connection here. You know, there's the, is the, is the, is the uh, urgency, is the, is the d- desire to see this new work bubble up sort of receding as, you know, as white guys leave the, you know, you know are not as central to what we're thinking about in terms of what the next generation of work is going to be? Well, I will say, so preparing for this, uh, so, Elizabeth, you emailed me yesterday and said, would you like to talk about this? And I said, absolutely. And then had what I usually have, which is a total pit of fear moment, <laughs> which is, do I know anything about that? Do I, what have I seen? And because I have a critic brain, which means that I forget 
instantly every show that I see and write about. So I, I thought, have I even been to the theater this year? Uh, I've been uh, 220 times, in fact, but wow. I couldn't couldn't remember it. So uh, it all I'm seems so it seems so vague. So. So I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? What could I possibly talk about? You know, I certainly feel as though the world is thinner. I feel like there's less work. And so I started making a list. And I came here with a list of three pages of different people who are uh, exciting, making vibrant, beautiful work. Mm. It isn't all about youth. I want to really make a push for saying, look, it is not about young voices uh, alone. It's about uh, uh, listening to mid-career artists as well. David Greenspan is still writing at the top of his game, mm. uh, you know that. Uh, but but I'm oh I you know yes you're saying is 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 the are the venues drying up? On the other hand, I came here with lists and lists and lists of people, thrilling people who are getting produced. Okwi, uh, who we just talked about, Heather Christian, Alex Berinsky, Heidi Schreck, Sybil Kempson, Kate E. Ryan, Daniel Fish. You're kind so, of obsessed with Sybil Kempson. I'm obsessed with Sybil Kempson. Claire Barron, Aaron Courtney, Jerry Lieblick. This is like Cola Scola, Aaron Markey, Taylor Mack, Daniel Alexander Jones, Dynasty Handbag. It and not is, just on, off, it off is Broadway, a good time. In, the reg- in regional theaters as well. Yeah. Right. Because, and that's exactly the point that I want to make. When I talk to students and they say, What do I do? And I say, Get out of town and care only for the work because you don't have to be in New York to make good theater. And even if you are in New York, there's no food chain anymore. Mm-hmm. So the important thing to do is to simply care about the work in the moment. And if that's your priority, then you can do it in any city in America because this country is full of gifted people, gifted theater artists of all kinds, and communities that I think are hungry for theater, whether they know it or not, mm-hmm. in a way that I don't know that New York necessarily is. I mean, our, our own discussion here uh, presupposes uh, unintentionally that it's got to be in New York. Uh, of course, the only problem mm-hmm. is that we don't hear about it if it's not in New York. But uh, who hears about it anyway? Um, the, the key, I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, but the keys to be pure of heart, you know, to say that the only thing that matters is, am I doing something that I want to be doing that I think is worth seeing? And you can do that in Detroit. You can do that in, in Palm Beach. You can do that anywhere in America. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Helen, can we just turn the show over to you from now on? <laughs> yes. yes, no kidding. Yeah, we're going to just like all step out and it's going to be the Helen Shaw it's just show. Dramaturgy we'll anecdotes. Yeah, You'll yeah. love it. Yeah. Well, you've been amazing. Thank you. Yes, for... how, how could you have thought that you wouldn't know what to say? This was just wonderful. Yeah, we, yeah. You're it was just wonderful. not even get to the teaching part. <laughs> yeah. So, will you stick around for our final segment, our Around the Horn segment, when each of us present a reach? A recent production of note that we've seen. Maybe you can go through your voluminous files there. Uh, <laughs> she brought along a filing cabinet and an assistant yes. who's going to hand her uh, car, uh, index cards. No. Uh, Terry, you want to talk about a show you've seen? Well, in honor of Helen's presence on the show today, I will mention uh, a play to which she, as we heard a little earlier, has a personal connection. Bertolt Brecht's The Resistible Rise of Arturo Wee which is being performed off-Broadway, that's one-off, by Classic Stage Company in a production directed and designed by John Doyle, that company's artistic director. I was a bit apprehensive about this revival going in, mostly because of Doyle himself. 
uh, we've seen a lot of his work in the last decade, and we know by now that he's really a one-size-fits-all director. All, all of his shows bear the same distinctive stamp. They're small-scale, stripped-down presentational productions. And what you think of them is going to depend on how closely the approach fits the show. In addition, Arturo Ui is not a masterpiece. It's a, it's a very effective play, but one that lends itself to on-the-nose revivals. It's a satirical account of Hitler's rise to power that's set in Chicago in the Roaring Twenties, with Hitler turned into Al Capone. Not surprisingly, it tends to get revived at moments when the theater community is particularly unhappy with the current occupant of the White House. And Mr. Doyle has made no secret of the fact that his Arturo Lee, who is played by Ralph Esparza, is Donald Trump. Now, oh. that's a recipe for over-obviousness. Oh, but no. I felt, for the most part, that uh, Doyle was really careful to steer clear of the kind of connect-the-dots point-making that is, to me, just the, the death of interesting theater. Uh, he does the show as a very cartoonish, very energetic farce. That's really the way Brecht wrote it. Uh, in, in fact, Esparza's accent reminded me of Jerry Lewis. But at the same there time... Could, there could be no higher praise. Yeah. Or lower. Uh, right. Hey. But at Depend, the same time... Depending on what country you're from. Right, exactly. But Esparza and Doyle, they take great care to remind us that people who knew Hitler and who wrote about him in the 30s and 40s were all unanimous in saying that his affect contained a strong streak of self-pity. Esparza really gets that. He really conveys it. And that's part of why his transformation into a full-fledged strongman during the show's climactic rally lands so hard. Hmm. I mean, I wish that Doyle had left out the locker-up chance at the end of the show. Uh, that was a little bit too obvious. Are you but... kidding? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were kidding. No. Oh, no, I'm dead serious. Uh, yeah. That was a mistake. Uh, because we could figure that one out ourselves. But otherwise, I found the production to be very exciting, very persuasive uh, of a play that's as I say, no masterpiece, but it can still, unfortunately, come across it as both potent and timely. Mm. Helen, yeah. All right. I just, my my one anecdote I can tell you about working on the Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui on this star-studded production that I did when I was you a very... You have to remind us who was in was, that production. I was yes, a tiny baby. Crazy. So I had just gotten out of graduate school, and as I may have mentioned, I was starving to death and i what, what, what year was that helen 2002 and i uh it was the first job i had in new york city the way that i got it is just pure skullduggery and uh the ui was al pacino mm. and i was trying very hard to just exude competence on every level uh <laughs> and uh and i at one point, it was not very long into rehearsal, like two days into rehearsal, and Simon McBurney, the director, a great, great mind, turned to me and said, Helen, I think you should lead the warm-up with the cast. Perhaps you could teach them some yoga. Please tell us and about I the said, cast. I said, oh. And I said, absolutely, I would be delighted to. Now, I did not know yoga at this time, and so... I had seen some yoga. Uh, I knew that it existed. And that is how I wound up uh, doing a lot of adjustments to Al Pacino's downward-facing dog, not having any idea if I was breaking a treasure of the American cinema or not. Anyway, so it was a good time. It was a good time, and it was such a pleasure to see the play again. I think, I know you said it isn't a masterpiece, but you know what is a masterpiece is that translation. George Tabori. Tabori. 
it is it's and it's worth reading and mulling over. It's Al beautiful. Pacino, Steve Buscemi, Chaz Palminteri, John Goodman, Billy Crudup, Paul Giamatti, and Charles Durning. You led them. Holy, America. holy Moses! Let's just what no, a no, no. Oh yeah, but also Tony Randall. Oh it was also the first post graduation show of a, a little fella called Sterling K. Brown. Oh um, my God! Oh yeah, no, everybody was in it. Wow. Um, you must have thought you'd died and gone to heaven. You, Dominic Chinese. I, okay, John oh yeah. It was. Oh, it God. was. It was. A, it, I remember. Yeah. I thought actually. I thought this is what working in New York was like. I was like, you know what? People complain, <laughs> but it's pretty easy. This is like my first gig. So anyway, uh, I'm reading yeah. my review. It says, "Here's to Helen Shaw's incredible work, physical work." That the, I, They're very supple. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Uh, indeed. So, Helen, do you have some show you would like to tell us about? I do. Oh, excellent. Peter, thank you so much. I, My uh, little spotlight, my little roving spotlight has to uh, land on Mia Chung's Catch as Catch Can. Mm. Uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful production done at the New Ohio, which is a tiny off-off space. Uh, and it had a very starry cast, uh, Janine Sorales, Jeff Beal, and Michael Esper. And they, they just dominated it was astounding uh one of the things that can happen in these off-off spaces is you wind up about five feet away from Mm. an actor working at top volume and and it is uh i actually kind of got fight or flight response watching this it was it was scary how intense the room was getting Mm. and uh i can't explain mia chung's technical wizardry here she allows scenes to happen simultaneously Mm. and the three characters the three actors play several different characters uh, without changing costume, uh, only changing their accent. And it is... Uh, it was it was very beautiful, and it what it did was it meant that the show was so hard to puzzle out. You were watching it, trying to figure out who was talking, what scene we were in, uh, that you didn't think about or you didn't realize what was happening to you emotionally until about an hour after the curtain came down. And I was getting off the subway and suddenly staggered and kind of had to support myself on a building as I realized emotionally what I had seen because it had taken so much mental work mm. to experience it in the theater. I just, I loved it. So mm. Mia Chung what, catches Cash what beautiful, What beautiful praise. Yes, what beautiful indeed. Praise. <laughs> Elizabeth. Um, I... <laughs> I uh, I like to talk about a show that made me uh, incredibly uncomfortable. At least parts of it made me very very uncomfortable. I was miserable. The first, the beginning, I was just like, "What the, f- what? Okay, what the fuck is, is this? Like, Go this is it. bullshit." <laughs> I really, um, it's it's called it's called "What to Stand Up When It Goes Down," and it's by Alicia Harris, uh, who had done "Is God Is" at mm, Soho, which I had missed, play. unfortunately. Mm. And so this one starts the, f- the, the first, it's in two very distinct parts, but they're actually very connected. And the first part is very interactive. Well, actually, first it starts, the, the, we're, we're given a speech before we enter the house about how this, this play is really meant for people of color. Mm-hmm. And non-people of color here, like looking at us, the audience, this, this is not for you. Welcome, but this is not, this is not intended for you. So right away you know this is driving a a wedge in the audience and i thought like okay this is i thought this is bullshit we have to be inclusive and i thought no actually no they don't we don't have to 
so then we go in and it's very, very interactive. There's a lot of, it's described as a ritual. It uses a lot of workshop techniques, mm. you know, of pa passing an object. You can talk only when you have an object in your hand. We're in a circle. Again, my first thought was, this is bullshit. You know, you have to, anyway, but I, I really was really not enjoying it, but I keep thinking about it. And mm. that, it just churned up a lot of thoughts about how very often, you know, a theater or the arts are meant to be a, a safe space for the audience. I This was not it, or at least not for the white people like me in the audience. Mm. And actually it was, it was good. But it was not meant, it was just not for me. Mm. And that, I really hit it at the moment. Okay, then it goes into more of a scripted part. Uh, and it's really roughly speaking about police brutality and violence on black people very very roughly mm. speaking uh it's a little s series of interconnected scenes and then it kind of wraps up and at the end the the non-people of color were asked to leave the 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 room mm. and the people of color were stayed in the room so we're outside and we could hear these roars <laughs> from wow. the outside what we were given another speech so again the, there's this idea that theater is is unifying and say we're all in it together this is like dream idea of theater this was not it at all this mm. was very on purpose uh divisive i'm not sure she would use that word i mean the playwright but it was did but you I feel don't like mean they were laughing at way. you no 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 when no they were I inside or in other words no no no, no i think they were doing some actually it's in the script what what happens inside and of course i i, I looked because i i had to know i'm curious mm. um so but yeah. It really churned a lot of ideas in my head about like what does it mean to be uncomfortable because like so many times if you're a person of color and you've been at so many Broadway shows or other Broadway shows and you felt completely alienated by what was going on on stage, right. how, how is that different except they don't verbalize it as obvious as this was? It sounds like a more extreme ex a version of what Fairview did which was ask the white he, members of the audience, people who identified as white, they right. said, to come onto the stage. And they separated I, us that way. I, I didn't go on the stage because I was still, Charlottesville was still ringing in my oh, ears and they mm. called Jews people of color. So I said, I'm a person of color for the purposes of my experience <laughs> ah. at this moment. I wanted to sit where I was and see how that, if they made me so, get out of my seat. I will say, but like that also reminded me that I think right now the most trenchant, innovative theater, at least in New York, is done by African-American playwrights mm -hmm. in terms of like, Messing with form and content, they're on 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 a level mm -hmm. that is just like they're really yeah. rethinking yeah. the form of theater. Interesting. But you actually, Helen, we you really didn't like that first part, right? It's it isn't that I didn't like it. It's that I have um, I I don't uh, I mean I left the church for a reason. I I don't uh, <laughs> I find. Um, enforced collectivity uh the the whole reason that i sit in an audience every right. night of my life is uh because of the kind of collectivity that i'm interested in right and so i was very uh, annoyed by this first section uh, i i was past a talking rock and i thought my god i don't i will not talk with your talking <laughs> right. rock and What'd then you do uh, I, pa I passed. You didn't um, say anything? No, I didn't say anything. Oh, wow, that's interesting, because when I saw it, every single person said something. Did oh, you, no, no, I don't. Did I, you see the fever? I'm, yes, I did see the fever, which also drove me absolutely me up too. seven types of tree. Thank you. Now, oh. but the thing about, oh, uh, the, the thing about um, what to send up when it goes down, 
is that it is uh, is that that central section, uh, the scripted section, is uh, the caliber of writing in it is is astonishing. And and uh, Alicia Harris has talked very beautifully about um, the influence of Entozaki Shange on her work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is. Even Entozaki Shange had a hard time maintaining the level of excitement and electricity, uh, which is in her, uh, which is in some of her plays. And this had it, and it was, it was like, I, you are, you are in the face of a talent here, which is really, really shocking and exciting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find her writing so beautiful. And so the section where we're doing a talking rock, part of it is I was annoyed. I was like, I'm here to hear her writing. But, right. I don't want to hear hokey. these. But, but don't you think? But but I think the, so. In the in the kind of aftermath of this production, uh, so. It's a cliche, it's a cliche, but people say of the theater that it is supposed to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And most shows have to pick which of those are they going to do. Are they going to afflict the comfortable? Is it Brecht? Are they going to comfort the afflicted? Is it Broadway? I don't know. (laughs) Um, And Alicia Harris managed to do both in one play simultaneously mm. and I think that right. is an incredible magic act. Exactly. Actually, the second part doesn't work without the first. Mm. They used Absolutely. To, they it was used great. to say that about journalism too if like the company. You make me very cur- curious about the show. Oh you must it's come. It's, it closes ways. December 8th. Alright well I'm going to be very brief about something I saw in D.C. Uh, which was the uh, the launch of the American tour of An Inspector Calls, which was a hit on Broadway uh, 20 years ago. This is uh, a show that's been not so much revived as exhumed uh, <laughs> in the sense that it is exactly the show. It's the same Wait. production that was done tw- uh, just with different actors, but it's the same set. It's the same lighting designer. It's the same mus- uh, composer. Really? It's exactly what? the same versions directed by the same director, which is a very strange sensation uh, for, for me as a person who saw it the first time and trying to uh, live it in two worlds at once, which was experience it as something that most of the audience had never seen before, but yet every step of it, I basically knew what was happening because I, you know, I, how do you write about that in a fresh way? Uh, I found the things about it that delighted me the first time, delighted me a little bit less this time. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what happens 20 years on, the innovations really do uh, get absorbed by the rest of the of the field. And what seems so revolutionary, uh, it's very hard to keep at, to be in the vanguard 20 years later. The set design was quite extraordinary in those days. And now it didn't seem so extraordinary. Mm. And so I was caught in, in a review basically saying, uh, you know, it's 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 sort of a, a, a step back in time. At the same time, that you'll probably enjoy seeing this because you in DC didn't see it the first time. Yeah, you know, I'm really interested in JB Priestley. Um, he's undergoing a revival on the side of the Atlantic, and I think also in England as well. I have reviewed two, maybe three regional productions of an Inspector Calls, a couple of other plays of his, and uh, I, I have a feeling that his his particular kind of political engagement. We're going to see more of his work mm-hmm. right at this moment. Mm-hmm. I, I, 
I, I don't think he's a great playwright, but he's an interesting playwright and an interesting writer more generally. I didn't know, but I didn't know about this tour. And once again, you have me tremendously curious. Yeah, it's going to Chicago, uh, uh, Boston, and L.A. as well, in to major venues, and playing each of them for a month. So they're, you know, it's a it's a major uh, revival with an all British cast. It's the same cast that toured this in in England a few years ago. I mean, they apparently wow. revived this and revived this and revived this in in England. It's a it's a real, it's a real uh, 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 chestnut in a sense. It's- I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Just just like this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Right. The worst transition. End. Yeah. Wah, yeah. Wah, yeah. 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 All right. No, seriously, we uh, unfortunately we have to wrap it up because we could go on for hours. We we have gone on for hours <laughs> of of Mike. <laughs> um, yes, we're done for now. Uh, please come back for episode 24. I can't believe we're. God, we're like really trundling along. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I'm Terry Teachout, and you've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. I'm Peter Marks. Uh, our guest has been the fabulous Helen Shaw. Our producer is the uh, intrepid Kirby Pate. You can follow us on Twitter at, at Three on the Isle, that's spelled out, and write to us at Three on the Isle at gmail.com. Please let us know what other topics or guests you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the aisle.